Section six of Chapter eighteen of a History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter eighteen, Section six. In sixteen eighty nine and in the beginning of 1690, William Fuller had rendered to the government service such as the best governments sometimes require, and such as none but the worst men ever perform. His useful treachery had been rewarded by his employers, as was meet with money and with contempt. Their liberality enabled him to live during some months like a fine gentleman. He called himself a colonel, hired servants, clothed them in gorgeous liveries, bought fine horses, lodged in Pall Mall, and showed his brazen forehead, overtopped by a wig worth fifty guineas, in the antechambers of the palace and in the stage-box at the theatre. He even gave himself the airs of a favourite of royalty, and, as if he thought that William could not live without him, followed his majesty first to Ireland, and then to the Congress of Princes at The Hague. Fuller afterwards boasted that at The Hague he appeared with a retinue fit for an ambassador, that he gave ten guineas a week for an apartment, and that the worst waistcoat which he condescended to wear, was of silver stuff at forty shillings a yard. Such profusion, of course, brought him to poverty. Soon after his return to England, he took refuge from the bailiffs in Axe Yard, a place lying within the verge of Whitehall. His fortunes were desperate. He owed great sums. On the government he had no claim. His past services had been overpaid. No future service was to be expected from him, having appeared in the witness-box as evidence for the crown. He could no longer be of any use as a spy on the Jacobites, and by all men of virtue and honour to whatever party they might belong, he was abhorred and shunned. Just at this time, when he was in the frame of mind, in which men are open to the worst temptations, he fell in with the worst of tempters, in truth with the devil in human shape. Oates had obtained his liberty, his pardon, and a pension which made him a much richer man than nineteen-twentieths of the member of that profession of which he was the disgrace. But he was still unsatisfied. He complained that he had now less than three hundred a year. In the golden days of the plot, he had been allowed three times as much, had been sumptuously lodged in the palace, had dined on plate, and had been clothed in silk. He clamoured for an increase of his stipend. Nay, he was even imprudent enough to aspire to ecclesiastical preferment, and thought it hard that while so many mitres were distributed, he could not get a deanery, a prebend, or even a living. 
He missed no opportunity of urging his pretensions. He haunted the public offices and the lobbies of the Houses of Parliament. He might be seen and heard every day, hurrying as fast as his uneven legs would carry him, between Charing Cross and Westminster Hall, puffing with haste and self-importance, chattering about what he had done for the good cause, and reviling in the style of the boatmen on the river all the statesmen and divines whom he suspected of doing him ill offices at court and keeping him back from a bishopric. When he found that there was no hope for him in the established church, he turned to the Baptists. They, at first, received him very coldly, but he gave such touching accounts of the wonderful work of grace which had been wrought in his soul, and vowed so solemnly before Jehovah and the holy angels to be thenceforth a burning and shining light, that it was difficult for simple and well-meaning people to think him altogether insincere. He mourned, he said, like a turtle. On one Lord's Day he thought he should have died of grief at being shut out from fellowship with the saints. He was at length admitted to communion, but before he had been a year among his new friends, they discovered his true character and solemnly cast him out as a hypocrite. Thenceforth he became the mortal enemy of the leading Baptists, and persecuted them with the same treachery, the same mendacity, the same effrontery, the same black malice which had many years before wrought the destruction of more celebrated victims. Those who had lately been edified by his account of his blessed experiences stood aghast to hear him crying out that he would be revenged, that revenge was God's own sweet morsel, that the wretches who had excommunicated him should be ruined, that they should be forced to fly their country that they should be stripped to the last shilling. His designs were at length frustrated by a righteous decree of the Court of Chancery, a decree which would have left a deep stain on the character of an ordinary man, but which makes no perceptible addition to the infamy of Titus Oates. Through all changes, however, he was surrounded by a small knot of hot-headed and foul-mouthed agitators, who, abhorred and despised by every respectable Whig, yet called themselves Whigs, and thought themselves injured because they were not rewarded for scurrility and slander with the best places under the crown. In 1691, Titus, in order to be near the focal point of political intrigue and faction, had taken a house within the precinct of Whitehall. To this house Fuller, who lived hard by, found admission. The evil work which had been begun in him when he was still a child by the memoirs of Dangerfield was now completed by the conversation of Oates. The Salamanca doctor was, as a witness, no longer formidable, but he was impelled 
partly by the savage malignity which he felt to all whom he considered his enemies, and partly by mere monkey-like restlessness and love of mischief, to do through the instrumentality of others what he could no longer do in person. In Fuller he had found the corrupt heart, the ready tongue and the unabashed front, which are the first qualifications for the office of a false accuser. A friendship, if that word may be so used, sprang up between the pair. Oates opened his house and even his purse to Fuller. The veteran sinner, both directly and through the agency of his dependents, intimated to the novice that nothing made a man so important as the discovering of a plot, and that these were times when a young fellow who would stick at nothing and fear nobody might do wonders. The revolution, such was the language constantly held by Titus and his parasites, had produced little good. The brisk boys of Shaftesbury had not been recompensed according to their merits. Even the doctor, such was the ingratitude of men, was looked on coldly at the new court. Tory rogues sat at the council board and were admitted to the royal closet. It would be a noble feat to bring their necks to the block. Above all, it would be delightful to see Nottingham's long, solemn face on Tower Hill, for the hatred with which these bad men regarded Nottingham had no bounds, and was probably excited less by his political opinions, in which there was doubtless much to condemn, than by his moral character, in which the closest scrutiny will detect little that is not deserving of approbation. Oates, with the authority which experience and success entitle a preceptor to assume, read his pupil a lecture on the art of bearing false witness. You ought, he said, with many oaths and curses, to have made more, much more, out of what you heard and saw at Saint-Germain. Never was there a finer foundation for a plot. But you are a fool, you are a coxcomb. I could beat you, I would not have done so. I used to go to Charles and tell him his own. I called Lauderdale rogue to his face. I made king, ministers, lords, commons afraid of me. But you young men have no spirit. Fuller was greatly edified by these exhortations. It was, however, hinted to him by some of his associates that, if he meant to take up the trade of swearing away lives, he would do well not to show himself so often at coffee-houses in the company of Titus. The doctor, said one of the gang, is an excellent person and has done great things in his time, but many people are prejudiced against him, and if you are really going to discover a plot, the less you are seen with him the better. Fuller accordingly ceased to frequent Oates House, but still continued to receive his great master's instructions 
in private. To do fuller justice, he seems not to have taken up the trade of a false witness till he could no longer support himself by begging or swindling. He lived for a time on the charity of the Queen. He then levied contributions by pretending to be one of the noble family of Sydney. He wheedled Tillotson out of some money, and requited the good Archbishop's kindness by passing himself off as his grace's favourite nephew. But in the autumn of 1691 all these shifts were exhausted. After lying in several sponging-houses, Fuller was at length lodged in the King's Bench prison, and he now thought it time to announce that he had discovered a plot. He addressed himself first to Tillotson and Portland, but both Tillotson and Portland soon perceived that he was lying. What he said was, however, reported to the King, who, as might have been expected, treated the information and the informant with cold contempt. All that remained was to try whether a flame could be raised in the Parliament. Soon after the Houses met, Fuller petitioned the Commons to hear what he had to say, and promised to make wonderful disclosures. He was brought from his prison to the bar of the House, and he there repeated a long romance. James, he said, had delegated the regal authority to six commissioners, of whom Halifax was first. More than fifty lords and gentlemen had signed an address to the French king, imploring him to make a great effort for the restoration of the House of Stuart. Fuller declared that he had seen this address, and recounted many of the names appended to it. Some members made severe remarks on the improbability of the story and on the character of the witness. He was, they said, one of the greatest rogues on the face of the earth, and he told such things as could scarcely be credited if he were an angel from heaven. Fuller audaciously pledged himself to bring proofs which would satisfy the most incredulous. He was, he averred, in communication with some agents of James. Those persons were ready to make reparation to their country. Their testimony would be decisive, for they were in possession of documentary evidence which would confound the guilty. They held back only because they saw some of the traitors high in office and near the royal person, and were afraid of incurring the enmity of men so powerful and so wicked. Fuller ended by asking for a sum of money, and by assuring the commons that he would lay it out to good account. Had his impudent request been granted, he would probably have paid his debts, obtained his liberty, and absconded. But the House very wisely insisted on seeing his witnesses first. He then began to shuffle. The gentlemen were on the continent, and could not come over without passports. Passports were delivered to him, but he complained that they were insufficient. At length the Commons, fully determined to get at the truth, presented an address requesting the King 
to send Fuller a blank safe conduct in the largest terms. The safe conduct was sent. Six weeks passed, and nothing was heard of the witnesses. The friends of the lords and gentlemen who had been accused represented strongly that the house ought not to separate for the summer without coming to some decision on charges so grave. Fuller was ordered to attend. He pleaded sickness and asserted, not for the first time, that the Jacobites had poisoned him. But all his plans were confounded by the laudable promptitude and vigour with which the commons acted. A committee was sent to his bedside, with orders to ascertain whether he really had any witnesses, and where those witnesses resided. The members who were deputed for this purpose went to the King's Bench Prison, and found him suffering under a disorder, produced in all probability by some emetic which he had swallowed for the purpose of deceiving them. In answer to their questions, he said that two of his witnesses, Delaval and Hayes, were in England, and were lodged at the house of a Roman Catholic apothecary in Holborn. The Commons, as soon as the committee had reported, sent some members to the house which he had indicated. That house and all the neighbouring houses were searched. Delaval and Hayes were not to be found, nor had anybody in the vicinity ever seen such men or heard of them. The house, therefore, on the last day of the session, just before Black Rod knocked at the door, unanimously resolved that William Fuller was a cheat and a false accuser, that he had insulted the government and the parliament, that he had calumniated honourable men, and that an address should be carried up to the throne, requesting that he might be prosecuted for his villainy. He was consequently tried, convicted, and sentenced to fine imprisonment and the pillory. The exposure, more terrible than death to a mind not lost to all sense of shame, he underwent with a hardihood worthy of his two favourite models, Dangerfield and Oates. He had the impudence to persist year after year in affirming that he had fallen a victim to the machinations of the late king, who had spent six thousand pounds in order to ruin him. Delaval and Hayes, so this fable ran, had been instructed by James in person. They had, in obedience to his orders, induced Fuller to pledge his word for their appearance, and had then absented themselves, and left him exposed to the resentment of the House of Commons. The story had the reception which it deserved, and Fuller sank into an obscurity from which he twice or thrice, at long intervals, again emerged for a moment into infamy. On the 24th of February, 1692, about an hour after the Commons had voted Fuller an impostor, they were summoned to the Chamber of the Lords. The King thanked the Houses for their loyalty and liberality, informed them that he must soon set out for the Continent, 
and commanded them to adjourn themselves. He gave his assent that day to many bills, public and private, but when the title of one bill, which had passed the lower house without a single division, and the upper house without a single protest, had been read by the clerk of the crown, the clerk of the parliaments declared, according to the ancient form, that the king and queen would consider the matter. Those words had very rarely been pronounced before the accession of William. They have been pronounced only once since his death, but by him the power of putting a veto on laws which had been passed by the estates of the realm was used on several important occasions. His detractors truly asserted that he rejected a greater number of important bills than all the kings of the House of Stuart put together, and most absurdly inferred that the sense of the estates of the realm was much less respected by him than by his uncles and his grandfather. A judicious student of history will have no difficulty in discovering why William repeatedly exercised a prerogative to which his predecessors very seldom had recourse, and which his successors have suffered to fall into utter desuetude. His predecessors passed laws easily, because they broke laws easily. Charles I gave his assent to the Petition of Right, and immediately violated every clause of that great statute. Charles II gave his assent to an act which provided that a Parliament should be held at least once in three years. But when he died, the country had been near four years without a Parliament. The laws which abolished the Court of High Commission, the laws which instituted the sacramental test, were passed without the smallest difficulty, but they did not prevent James the Second from re-establishing the Court of High Commission and from filling the Privy Council, the public offices, the Courts of Justice, and the municipal corporations with persons who had never taken the test. Nothing could be more natural than that a king should not think it worth while to withhold his assent from a statute with which he could dispense whenever he thought fit. The situation of William was very different. He could not, like those who had ruled before him, pass an act in the spring and violate it in the summer. He had, by assenting to the Bill of Rights, solemnly renounced the dispensing power, and he was restrained, by prudence as well as conscience and honour, from breaking the compact under which he held his crown. A law might be personally offensive to him. It might appear to him to be pernicious to his people, but as soon as he had passed it, it was, in his eyes, a sacred thing. He had, therefore, a motive, which preceding kings had not, for pausing before he passed such a law. They gave their word readily, because they had no scruple about breaking it. He gave his word slowly, because he never failed to keep it. But his situation, though it differed widely from that of the princes of the House of Stuart, was not precisely that 
of the princes of the house of Brunswick. A prince of the house of Brunswick is guided as to the use of every royal prerogative by the advice of a responsible ministry, and this ministry must be taken from the party which predominates in the two houses, or at least in the lower house. It is hardly possible to conceive circumstances in which a sovereign so situated can refuse to assent to a bill which has been approved by both branches of the legislature. Such a refusal would necessarily imply one of two things, that the sovereign acted in opposition to the advice of the ministry, or that the ministry was at issue on a question of vital importance. With a majority both of the commons and of the lords, on either supposition, the country would be in a most critical state, in a state which, if long continued, must end in a revolution. But in the earlier part of the reign of William there was no ministry. The heads of the executive departments had not been appointed exclusively from either party. Some were zealous Whigs, others zealous Tories. The most enlightened statesmen did not hold it to be unconstitutional that the king should exercise his highest prerogatives on the most important occasions without any other guidance than that of his own judgment. His refusal, therefore, to assent to a bill which had passed both houses indicated not, as a similar refusal would now indicate, that the whole machinery of government was in a state of fearful disorder, but merely that there was a difference of opinion between him and the two other branches of the legislature as to the expediency of a particular law. Such a difference of opinion might exist, and as we shall hereafter see, actually did exist, at a time when he was, not merely on friendly, but on most affectionate terms, with the estates of the realm. End of section 6